baptisms and the first Sunday of Advent and worship itself in so many ways point to a turning point, a time or place of transition for us individually and as a parish and indeed as a nation. Not long ago, I began a conversation with a friend who's exploring the possibility of baptism. And his first question, interestingly enough, was, was about the reality that in his view, most Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now, he was not appalled by my way of, own way of addressing that question, which is to say that while I believe Jesus, following Jesus as the way of life is the only authentic option for me, uh, I would not assume that a God who makes that the only way for all of humanity for all time to be a God worthy of worship. And that led us into a conversation about the thing that has divided Christians from the beginning, and that is who gets to say what the Bible is about. My friend was of the view that the Bible is the church's book and that the church should offer definitive interpretation rather than appearing to leave interpretation up to all kinds of individuals. And I shared with him that there is a good option for that belief, and that is the Roman Catholic communion, which is a perfectly good and fine communion if you want that kind of hierarchical definition of doctrine as the starting point, the, the authoritative interpretation of what matters and what is right. Our attempt in the Anglican communion to be Catholic is more centered on right relationship, itself a gift of grace, in which we work out the meanings of the story that really matters together, all of us being transformed by the Spirit around the table in conversation with other churches and other communions with history and indeed with the history of doctrine itself. But in any event, we are not baptized into a particular way of following Jesus, a particular way of living the faith, a particular denomination or a particular way of being Christian. Because we, like the children who will soon be presented to us, are baptized into Christ. We're baptized into relation with God, which we then have to work out our whole lives long. And we're committed to working out according to what really matters, according to what is of ultimate worth. In baptism, we say we turn to Christ. That is metanoia. That is repentance. We turn our backs on sin and turn toward the light. In worship, every week, we are oriented or turned to that which is of ultimate worth, to that which really matters, praying it will shape us to live more faithfully and more courageously and more hopefully. So in baptism, we mark the turning of our lives that must happen throughout our whole lives long. We're also at a turning point in the year, that happy coincidence where very often the first Sunday of Advent, the new year, follows the Feast of Thanksgiving. As we move a turning point from Thanksgiving to hope, we move from our holiday of gratitude, which is the experience which is the foundation for reasonable and holy hope for the beginning of a Christian year. As with most Advents, our readings point us towards such ideas as the end times, the second coming of Christ, the eternal sovereignty of God in justice and in peace. We hear prophecy reminding us to care for the widows and the orphans. We hear of dramatic planetary disturbance in the heavens in Mark 13 with Jesus talking about 
what will happen and talking about the prophecy of suffering and the promise that they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. He was not talking, as did our opening hymn, about the Christ coming to earth. He's talking about Christ being glorified into heaven, coming with the clouds and gathering the whole of heaven and the whole of earth into the presence of God where justice and peace reign. That's the hope. That's the hope he's talking about the ascension into the realms of heaven. And even so, the possibility of some kind of returning, some kind of return, some kind of second coming is part of our cultural imagination, even if we find it incomprehensible or unlikely in any meaningful way to happen. It's, it's part of our expression of hope that things don't have to be the way they are. A friend has recently given me a book. I'm going to mention this book only once. I'll tell you why in a minute. It's by John Niven, and it's called The Second Coming. And I warn you that it is a thoroughly equal offender and, disdain all resp and disclaim all responsibility in the event that you do seek it out and read it. If you ask me after church to remind you, I won't do it because significant features of heaven involve the smoking of illegal substances and the liberal use of the F-bomb. And graphic descriptions of the torments of hell and names of some of those receiving such ministrations of the devil are also unfit for tender imaginations. You have been warned. However, that said, the book's got a fun premise and I think an important one, actually. It says, God's been on a week's holiday, which is roughly 400 years in human terms. And in those years, humanity has really messed things up. God is annoyed, was already annoyed with Moses for changing the single commandment he had, which was be nice, into the ten, which then caused all sorts of religious fighting. God is appalled by genocide. God is appalled by religious righteousness and division. God is appalled by systemic injustice by, by which some become obscenely rich while others do not have enough to eat. He's appalled by wars. He's appalled by famine, which doesn't have to happen. Human creation of, of evil and degradation. He has a special place outside his window, according to this book. The author says it's the Emerald Orchard, where the souls of toddlers and tiny babies play. God watches them gurgle and gamble in the morning light, squeaking with delight among the flowers. Many of them had met violent deaths. They were burned alive in house fires, beaten until their delicate spines broke or their chest caved in, drowned in dun canals, in rivers the color of lead, strangled with bunched, tattooed fingers, some gassed in ovens, others sundered with machetes or shot with automatic weapons at close range. They were all perfect and unscarred here in heaven, of course. The infants are the luckiest ones, the ones who get to grow up in heaven, who will never know anything else. Now, I know this is graphic, but it's this kind of passion about what is wrong with the world that pulsates through this book. And God wonders what God's going to do. And God contemplates doing what he's gone before and wiping the whole thing out and starting over. But it's persuaded by the disciples and others that that's not necessarily the best way to go. It took a long, long, long time, both in God's terms and in earthly terms, to create this world. And so God has to do something. And God sends Jesus back. 
And Jesus is born of a young woman in the Midwest with the charge to speak the truth, bring hope to the hopeless, and remind everyone to be nice. And Jesus, in time, grows up, becomes the lead guitarist in an unimpressive indie band in New York, gathers a collection of freaks and weirdos around him, and eventually, in, in desperation, enters uh, the novel's equivalent of American Idol, or one of those shows. And he gets a platform, and he starts speaking, and, and people tune in who've never tuned in before just to watch this train wreck happening as he uses the platform to preach justice and hope and takes on the media and takes on many of the things that many of the hypocrisies that keep all of that show going. And he wins some money, a lot of money, and he takes his winnings and he establishes a commune in Texas, in Paradise, Texas, no less. I've been there. And, uh, and this commune, people can come, and they, they have to work stuff out. Some people really don't want to work. Some people don't want to be part of the community, don't want to have some of the norms of the community. And he uh, has to ask some people to leave. But basically, they do well. But people in the community get nervous, and they get anxious, and they start rumors about child abuse, and they, they wonder, and they think there are probably illegal drugs being grown on the property, and they're not sure, and they eventually get the powers that be into it, and as so often happens, start talking about how to do something rather than why you're doing it, and in this novel, the powers that be do what they often do, and they raid the compound, and Jesus is photographed, he's actually about to throw away a rifle he's picked up, and he's photographed holding his rifle up, he's blamed for the deaths of many uh, BATF agents and FBI agents, he's imprisoned, he's tried, and he's put to death through injection, executed. And afterwards, he appears to one of his friends suggesting how the group might be exonerated. At one point in the story, the gang is moving from New York to Los Angeles. And someone says, Jesus, why, why on earth didn't you just take the contract and fly in the front of the airplane? You'd be there in four hours instead of this endless bus trip. And Jesus answers them, well, it's community. It's about being together. It's not about getting what I can while I can. This whole book is a fun idea, but it's also largely faithful underneath all the stuff. It's largely faithful to a reading of Scripture that tells the story of what happens to outsiders who threaten the status quo, the story of those who raise up, once again, the fundamental nature of community, of how it is that we're going to live together, of how it is that we can be as a society. And to that end, I've been trying to think about whether to say anything or what to say uh, about the Occupy movement, Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Atlanta. It's spread throughout the country and throughout the world and marks, I think, some kind of a turning point, or at least I hope some kind of a turning point in our national conversation. I'm not sure how important the movement is ultimately, but the conversation is really important. Gary Dorian is an Episcopal, Episcopalian who teaches ethics at Union Seminary in New York. And, and I, he wrote an article in the Christian Century that I found more helpful than much that I've read. And he describes the early days. He says, at first, on Wall Street, they were activists, artists, and students. But by day nine, on September 26th, the protest was attracting teachers, trade unionists, and many others from traditional activist organizations. He says, Occupy Wall Street is not a progressive organization. 
It is a social movement with a distinct ethos. The organizers understand that making government policy will never be their job anyway. Their job is to raise hell about a system that has turned American society into a pyramid and made a mockery of American democracy and to build a social movement that practices radical, leaderless, direct democracy. I'm not sure that's my vision of heaven, but it's, it's an okay vision, and I'm glad I'm not one of the mayors of those cities where the protests are taking place, because I too would probably wind up drawing the line between protest, which is good, and encampment, which somehow violates many of the expectations we have of what it means to be community. I was particularly struck when Ambassador Andrew Young commented on the Occupy movement a couple of weeks ago here after uh, his Woodall lecture. He basically said the leaders of the movement don't know what they're doing and then confessed that in the early days of the civil rights movement, we didn't know what we were doing either. I'm happy for this group, these groups, to raise the fundamental questions of systemic justice in a society where every day we read that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. I'm also happy to engage a conversation about the size of government, although I'd like to hear a lot more about justice in that uh, conversation. The anger in this country is real. Most of us keeping our heads down, hoping to get through, but the anger is real that Congress cannot come to an agreement on a common vision and how to get there with a budget that reflects common values. And that seems to me to be underlying the underlying issue. We all want to fly in the front of the airplane and take four hours, even at the expense of community. And it seems to me we've got to get back to a conversation about what are the common values of this country, so that it's not just us helping, doing great work by holding up the plight of refugees and befriending them and looking for life transformation for men who are addicted and homeless and, and trying to prevent the working poor from being evicted through the Midtown Assistance Center and on and on and on. These are great signs of the kingdom, but we need a larger conversation about how we live together. It may be a kind of turning point. This impasse in politics has pro generated protests from every political direction with protesters on all sides and with varying degrees of success trying not to get co-opted by some particular party agenda. It's another turning point of the kind we see marked in baptism, marked in the beginning of a new year, marked each week in worship, where we turn our backs on sin and look to be informed by the light and try and live more fully in community towards what really matters. And I hope the churches will use whatever convening authority we might have to be part of those conversations. But in the meantime, we have baptisms to celebrate. And perhaps the call to come to some kind of New Year's resolution individually as we turn again to what really matters for life and turn our backs on those things we know are bad for us and for others. As we pray for these children, so we can pray also for ourselves. We can pray for a national debate in our country that isn't marked by sniteness and blaming and put-downs and cleverness and winning points, but instead perhaps marked by just being nice and give thanks for the blessings we enjoy as we forge a renewed sense of community with justice and hope for all. That's what we're turning toward, my brothers and sisters. I pray that it may come so for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.